Welcome to Indie Matters. The show from the Nevada Independent. I'm your host, Joey Lovato, up here in Reno. And I'm reporter and producer Jacob Solis down in Las Vegas. On this episode of Indie Matters, reporter Chanel Polito brings us a story she's been working on all summer about a bill that the legislature passed that requires Nevada public schools to promote more diversity in their curriculum. After that, reporters Humberto Sanchez, Tabitha Mueller, and Janelle Calderon have a story on evictions. The CDC's federal moratorium lapsed, but was renewed a few days later. But advocates are still worried that tenants may fall through the cracks. At the end of the show, Jacob and I sit down to talk about a surprise announcement from Governor Steve Sisolak Thursday that would direct his medical advisors to explore a COVID vaccine mandate for college students. We break down how we got here and what could happen next. Last May, lawmakers passed a bill aimed at promoting the teaching of diverse perspectives in arts, humanities, and science classes in Nevada public schools. Although the state already had multicultural education standards in place for social studies, the new requirements have garnered new attention amid the nationwide dialogue over social justice and so-called critical race theory. Nevada is one of 16 states that have made an effort this year to expand education on race and the contributions of specific racial or ethnic groups in U.S. history or related topics. It comes at a time when many states are going in the opposite direction. Reporter Chanel Polito has more. 16-year-old Reno High School student Mia Albright said the lack of diverse perspectives taught at school had real consequences in her own life. The rising senior, who is half white and half Hispanic, testified for AB 261 at the Education Committee hearings in the spring. Growing up in the Washoe County School District in Reno, Nevada, taught me nothing about Central America and left me with serious questions about my identity and my culture. A lack of coverage of people of color in curriculum and textbooks had me fervently wishing to only be white. All I wanted in elementary and middle school was to fit in better with my peers at my predominantly white schools. Missing Latinx perspectives also had me forming flawed, racist ideas about what an American is supposed to look like. I used to cringe when my abuela spoke Spanish to me at at a grocery store, ashamed and embarrassed of my own family. I considered myself better than other Hispanic students who struggled with speaking English because it wasn't their first language. Other students described learning about historical events that were never discussed in the classroom. Nathan Noble is a graduate of the Nevada public school system and now attends UNR. He told lawmakers that he discovered details of a historical massacre not from the classroom, but from binge-watching a television show. One day I was sitting down to watch HBO's Watchmen. Great show. The first scene, though, depicts the Tulsa massacre, which was the largest and most horrific race massacre in our nation's history. As depicted, it was brutal, terrifying, but also the first time I had ever heard about it. After doing some Googling, I was shocked to learn that this had actually happened because I had learned nothing about it in AP US history. Now a television show was doing what my school should have. Albright and Noble were testifying in support of AB 261, which, as written, prohibits the State Board of Education from selecting instructional materials, including textbooks, for use in public schools unless they accurately portray the history and contributions of the groups laid out in the bill in an age-appropriate manner. 
The groups of people outlined in the bill include Native Americans, the LGBTQ plus community, disabled people, people of various racial and ethnic backgrounds, socioeconomic statuses, and more. But the bill passed out of the legislature without a single Republican vote. The push to make instruction more inclusive comes as conservative activists continue to associate diversity and inclusion measures with what is known as critical race theory, a legal academic theory that examines racism in law and public policy. The term has become a lightning rod in conservative media. Critical race theory is racist. I don't see critical theory, race theory, in our Declaration of Independence. Many community members have pushed back against what they believe to be critical race theory being taught in K-12 public schools, even as officials, teachers, and students insist that it is not. Some opponents of AB 261 drew a direct line between the legislation and critical race theory. Here's Alita Benson, political director of the Nevada Republican Party, during the Senate Education Committee hearing on the bill last spring. Rather than address the poor allocation of funds and the lack of student choice for schools, there is a focus on revamping curriculum to quietly insert backdoor critical race theory into our schools that our parents have rejected. But others are more supportive. Rebecca Garcia is the president of the Nevada PTA and a mother of four students in the Clark County School District. Here's what she said about the benefits of teaching diverse perspectives. When you think about it that way, do we want our kids to think critically? Do we want kids to have an accurate understanding of history? Do we want kids to know and and appreciate a variety of cultures and backgrounds and know how to engage with each other appropriately? Who wouldn't support that? (laughs) But instead, I think because we're in such polarized times, people pick on one or two parts of, for example, AB 261, that are much more hot button. According to Professor Addie Rolnick at the UNLV William S. Boyd School of Law, critical race theory argues that racism is not just demonstrated by individual people with prejudices, but that it can be unconscious and embedded in structures such as the law. The theory is centered on the idea that race is not merely a biological trait, but a social construct that the law has helped define. Critical race scholars argue that the legal system is not a set of neutral, colorblind rules, but that it perpetuates racial inequality. AB 261's sponsor, Democratic Assemblywoman Nathan Anderson from Sparks, said the bill is not about critical race theory but about adding to existing social study standards that include multicultural education and expanding teachers' access to inclusive instructional materials. Proponents of the bill urge people to look at the bill itself and its potential benefits to students. I spoke with Albright, who recalled hearing a remark from an opponent of the bill after she testified. I think this woman actually called me out by name and was like, this student has no idea what she's talking about. And I was just kind of like shocked that like she would come after me. And um, so I know a lot of people sort of didn't understand what the bill was trying to do and thought that it would teach us, teach students to not like white men or something like that. And I think, 
I wish those people could um, read the bill and understand why it's so needed. And I tried to convey that in my message, but I think some people still didn't get it. And there was definitely quite a bit of um, pushback against it. But outside of the political debate, several teachers who spoke with the Nevada Independent say they think the new law will bring positive changes in the classroom. Sheila Weathers is a fourth grade teacher at Tonica Elementary School in Las Vegas. She says she has seen firsthand how teaching diverse perspectives can increase student engagement. I see my kids, their eyes light up when they see someone who looks like them. To me, that's that's powerful. Being able to open a text and say, hey, that person looks like me. Their story mirrors my story. To me, that can make a major impact. Identity is, 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 is just important. You know, you, you can see, I've seen kids who are like, oh, you know, they seem not really fully engaged in a lesson. And the moment they, they make that connection to who they are, it's like night and day. They, they want to learn more. Luann Wagner teaches U.S. history, government, in a class called the African American Experience for 11th and 12th graders at Ed W. Clark High School in Las Vegas. She recalled a situation about 20 years ago when a white student asked her if he could share a story with the rest of his classmates. What he told me is that when he was growing up in Texas, he was raised as a white supremacist. And that since he moved to Las Vegas and since he went to Clark High School, and this was way, way back, like 2001, um, he said since he's been at Clark and the teachers that he had and my class, he said that he changed his outlook. And he was a different person and he no longer believed what he was brought up with. So if I can create an environment where my students feel safe enough to say something like that and to be accepted by their peers, then I, I think we're on the right track. You can read more about the specific details of the bill and its implementation, as well as what other Nevadans are saying about it, in Chanel's story that will be published on the Indy website this weekend. Chanel and the Indy also organized a contest for middle and high school students in Nevada to submit artwork about diversity in education. Check out their creative work in the story. This piece was written and reported by Chanel Polito and edited and produced by myself, Joey Lovato, with additional help from Michelle Rendells. Many tenants who have struggled to pay rent during the pandemic have found themselves in the middle of a dizzying cycle of government orders. A federal moratorium on evictions ended on July 31st, but the federal government on August 2nd enacted a new 60-day moratorium on evictions for counties with high levels of COVID transmission. That includes almost all Nevada counties except five small rural jurisdictions. An estimated 61,000 Nevadans are behind on rent. To help break down what has happened on the federal level in the past week, we have our Washington, D.C.-based reporter, Humberto Sanchez, on the line. Hey, Humberto, how's it going? Good, man. How are you? 
doing well. And, and you know, so we've been talking about the uh, the eviction moratorium. And the first thing I want to ask you is this issue has been kind of a hot potato of politics. No one really wants to deal with it. Can you explain to me what's happened in the last two weeks and break it down for me? So, yeah. So the, the CDC had this moratorium on a, a national ban on evictions to keep the pandemic from spreading. The idea being that keeping people in their homes allows them to to stay out of out of the public and keeps the disease essentially from spreading by keeping them from going out, giving them a place to be. So that expired at the end of July. And running up to that expiration, there had been a lawsuit filed in the in the Supreme Court ruled on it saying that we'll allow this extension through through July. But essentially, Justice Brett Kavanaugh wrote that he doesn't think that the administration has the authority to to do another ban beyond July 31st. So July 31st comes and goes and nothing happens. Basically, the White House said it had looked at all its legal options. And because of this ruling in the Supreme Court, it had no authority to extend the moratorium or even do a more targeted type of moratorium. And so that put the onus back on Congress. Congress tried to do it. The House thought that they could do a moratorium through the end of the year. Then they couldn't find the votes for that among their own, among themselves, among Democrats. And then they thought maybe through October 18th, and again, they fell short there on, on the votes so that they, they left for the August recess without doing anything. That led a group of progressives to, to basically camp out outside of the Capitol to try to highlight this issue and the need to act. So Democratic leaders put it back on the White House saying, you guys have to act. We, we tried and we couldn't do it. And there's a story in the Washington Post saying that, that President Biden and uh, Nancy Pelosi turned to their a longtime Democratic advisor and legal scholar, Lawrence Tribe at a Harvard University, who said there's possibly a legal rationale for moratorium, a new moratorium that would be more targeted. And that appears to be the strategy that went into effect. And the president said at a press conference that even though the, the rationale is not exactly clear, once, it, once this is challenged in the courts, that it's worth trying and, and that that alone would give people more time to get these rental relief funds that have been so slow to be doled out. And, and where has the Nevada delegation fallen on this issue? Well, it's essentially fallen on party lines. We saw Mark Amaday, the Republican in the delegation, put out a, a pretty harsh statement saying that this is a, kind of lends itself to this culture of, of people not working and, and getting all this pandemic relief. And ultimately, he says this is going to be bad for the economy. It's going to hurt us getting back to normal. And he doesn't he doesn't think it's a good idea at all. Whereas we saw Dina Titus, who was very quick to act on this. She told me before the, the extension had expired that uh, she was for adding another one. Once the White House said it didn't have authority, she was very quickly to call on Democratic leaders to do something. And Susie Lee and Stephen Horsford also were, were in favor. Stephen Horsford put out a statement saying that his family had been evicted at one point and when he was younger. So he, it was personal for him in, in that regard. In the Senate, though, they, they almost seemed to know that no, no extension was going to come because they, they were more focused on, let's see what we can do to get those funds out there quicker. So Senator Catherine Cortez Masto and Senator Jackie Rubin both said, we want to get those funds. We want to focus on that to get them out more quickly. So uh, it was essentially party lines. But once the eviction moratorium was announced that you saw no complaints from the Democrats. All right. Well, Humberto, thanks for that quick recap on what we've got going on here. Anytime, man. Next, we'll talk with reporter Tabitha Mueller, who can explain what the steps the state has taken to prevent evictions and concerns that the extended moratorium may not stop people from getting booted from their home. Tabs, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me, Joey. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So so Nevada lawmakers passed a bill this spring that tries to slow down a wave of evictions. Can you explain to me what exactly that bill is trying to do? 
Yeah. So the bill is called AB or Assembly Bill 486. And what AB 486 essentially does is it provides more rights to tenants. It provides more protections to tenants and specifically tenants who are applying or applied for rental assistance funds. So what the bill does is that it, and, and there's there's a lot of different things, but but the broad overview of it is that if you have applied for rental assistance funds or you received rental assistance funds, or you're somewhere along the process, then you should not be able to be evicted for non-payment of rent because of COVID, essentially. And it just provides an extra layer of protection for tenants that are waiting to receive that rental money. So, so some advocates are worried that the this new 60-day moratorium and the legislature's bill are not enough to actually prevent these evictions from happening. How do you think people are going to you know, fall through the cracks, if at all? So the problem is, is that if people don't know about the rental assistance, the problem is if people aren't aware of how to apply for it or are just so overwhelmed right now with everything going on that they don't think about it or they have to go and be proactive about this process. Like 486 doesn't just apply, oh, you got rental assistance funds, you're automatically protected. You actually, the onus is on the tenant to go into court and say, look, I did apply for these funds. I do have it. It has to go in that formal affidavit and within the legal process. I think there's also a concern that if a tenant is denied rental assistance funds, 486 wouldn't apply because they would have already gone through that process and they would not have received those funds. And then how are these two things kind of interacting? What's the interplay between these? So essentially the way that it works is that whatever protection is greater. So that is the one that is going to apply. So AB 486 actually provides greater protections for tenants generally. So that's the one that a lot of courts are deferring to. However, if 486 does not apply because a tenant has been rejected or denied that rental assistance, then theoretically the CDC moratorium could apply because they could show a burden of proof that, hey, I did try to apply, I was rejected, but because of extenuating circumstances and given COVID, that's the problem. All right. Well, Tabs, thanks for breaking all that down. I know it's kind of a complicated situation, but I appreciate it. Yeah, no problem, Joey. Next, I've got some clips from reporter Janelle Calderon, who spoke with Enrique Acuna, an attorney at the Legal Aid Center of Southern Nevada, about resources for those finding themselves facing eviction or other rent-related issues. Alrighty, so what are the common problems you're hearing from clients? Well, obviously, people are behind on their rent. Even if they have gone back to work, sometimes they owe four or $5,000 or more, and so they're unable to catch up with what they're behind. So that's the biggest issue. We still have some people that are still not back to work. And so they really need rental assistance because they're just unable to be to pay month to month. Those are the, the major issues. We're also seeing some problems where landlords are not telling their tenants the truth about what the law is and what the change of the moratorium uh, now that the moratorium's ended. So it's really important that they come to us, that they get the right information so that they can protect themselves. What can households do if they do receive an eviction notice? So it's very, very important. A eviction for non-payment of rent, it starts with a seven-day notice, and they need to take action within those seven days. And that requires that they file something with the court. If they don't, on the eighth day, the landlord can get an eviction order. And after that, they could be evicted with as little as 24 hours notice. So once they get a seven-day eviction, they need to immediately go to the court. They could go to the self-help center 
We have staff there that can help them fill out answers. We'll explain to them what they need to do to protect themselves, how they can apply for rental assistance. And once they do that and they file their answer, then they're going to they're be protected from eviction. People have to take action. And Nevada has a very, very strong law in favor for protecting tenants, but it requires action. It's not automatic. Right. And so who is eligible for rental assistance? It's anyone that's behind on their rent. It, it really is a very, very broad applicability to all kinds of Nevadans. It doesn't matter if they're high income or low income, as long as they lost their job and are having financial difficulties as a result of the pandemic, they qualify for rental assistance. Yeah. And what do you expect to see in the next few months? I mean, we already know the courts are going to be probably packed, but do you see the rush right now or later? Well, I think some landlords are holding back a little bit. They wanted to wait to see what happens. The Legal Aid Center has a lot of windows open where, where they used to go and pay for traffic tickets in the court. We took them over and we could actually help people walk through filing their answers. So we're ready for helping the community. And so we really need people to get the word out that help is available and protections are available for tenants. you or someone you know are struggling with rent, you can find resources at housing.nv.gov or by searching for legal service providers such as the Legal Aid Center of Southern Nevada. Make sure to read all of our coverage as things progress on the nevadaindependent.com. All right, and so I am here and I'm joined by my wonderful co-host and our higher education reporter, Jacob Solis. Jacob, how's it going? It's going well, Joey. It's going well. Good. So, Jacob, you and I were going to talk about community colleges, mask mandates, vaccines. We're going to talk about some of that still, but it's been a pretty crazy news day. Uh, the governor held a press conference. Tell me about what's going on. Let's start with this. What was this press conference about that involves higher education? That's right. So today, sort of, as we examine the numbers right now for COVID, right, hospitalizations are up, cases are up, are still surging because of the Delta variant. The governor called a surprise press conference today. And as part of that, he announced that he was directing his medical advisory team to begin exploring whether or not the state should mandate the COVID vaccine for college students. Now, this is the end of about a two-week-long saga, and we're still only about halfway through. There's a lot of steps that need to happen before we actually have a mandate, and a lot of things that need to happen before that mandate is actually in place. But this is probably the most concrete step we've taken toward a mandate, while hundreds of other colleges nationwide have put those mandates in place. And this is a pretty interesting topic that you've been reporting on and looking into the past couple of weeks. Who has the authority to require masks and vaccines on college campuses? So it seems like the governor does or, or he's at least directing someone who does have the authority to require these things. So there's really two parts to this question. There's the masks and then there's the vaccines. Now for masks, NSHE, now that's the Nevada system of higher education, they they have the authority to, to do what they want. And they've been very clear from the beginning that they're just going to follow what the directives are. So we saw when Clark County put in a partial mask mandate last month that NSHE followed along and UNLV and CSN jumped on that and they had to abide by that. And basically, as soon as the CDC changed their recommendation, NSHE followed suit. So that, that's what's happening on the mask front. Vaccines are much more complicated because there's a legal framework that's already in place that would dictate how a vaccine mandate actually happens. And so we have to roll back the clock to May. In May of this year, the chancellor puts out a statement that basically says, 
hey students, hey parents, we are exploring the possibility of a vaccine mandate. It's not in place yet, but if certain things happen, then we are planning uh, to put one in place and we're going to do it through this process. So the thing was that in May, the real concern was whether or not that the method the FDA used to approve the vaccines for emergency use in the first place may actually prohibit a mandate. So the thing is, it's called an emergency use authorization, and it's a law in the U.S. code, and it has a little line in there that says that you need to inform people that they can accept or deny the treatment in question. And so there was an open legal question, because this has never been litigated before, there's been no need to, about whether or not governments schools, businesses could mandate a vaccine like the COVID vaccine with the EUA language reading like it does. Now, that was in May. In July, the U.S. Justice Department, with the Attorney General and everything, they release a a legal opinion that says, no, the EUA language is just about information. It does not prohibit a mandate. So lots of colleges start making the move to implement mandates. Around the same time, there was a lawsuit against the University of Indiana challenging its mandate in court, and a federal district court judge ruled in favor of the university. Now, none of that applies to Nevada, where, like I said, there's a specific state process, and that's really what came into focus this week, because as we've gotten closer to the semester, we've seen cases rise, We've seen hospitalizations surge, and a lot of that is because the vaccination rates in Nevada are among the lowest in the country. And so not only that, but the vaccination rates among young people are lower than the average, and the number of young people that are college students quite high, as it turns out. <laughs> so there was an existing concern that sort of these the, the way these demographic trends work out, that college campuses were going to be a tinderbox essentially for COVID because we saw last year in campuses that were in person, and that wasn't Nevada. Nevada was almost entirely online last year. But in campuses that were in person, college campuses were huge COVID hotspots. And so there was a, a lingering concern that with the Delta variant, with everyone coming back to campus and with vaccination rates being, as we expected, quite low that this could be a situation. And so a lot of faculty and a lot of students over the last two weeks have been increasing calls sort of asking, okay, hundreds of like over 600 other institutions across the country have put a mandate in place. So then why hasn't Nevada followed suit with these 600 other universities? Okay, so this gets back to the question of who actually has the authority to do a mandate. Is it the system, the Nevada system of higher education, NSHE, as we'd think of it? Is it the Board of Regents, which is the elected body that controls higher education in Nevada? Or is it someone else? And the real answer is someone else. Technically, what would happen is there is an existing state law that allows the State Board of Health. So the Board of Health is a six-member board of doctors that covers sort of non-administrative health matters. And they basically have the authority from this very specific state law that says they can decide when to add new vaccines to the list of existing vaccines that you need uh, enroll in a Nevada school. And that's K-12 and college. It's things like the measles, mumps, and rubella vaccine, the tetanus vaccine, all that kind of stuff. And so you already need to show proof of vaccination to enroll in school, you would simply expand the list to include COVID. How does something actually get to the State Board of Health? That has been the open question over the last week. And that was frankly the question that was answered today with the governor. Essentially, what will happen now is the governor has already asked his advisory team. We have found out this week that NSHE themselves, their own COVID task force, recommended a mandate that got passed to the governor's office. So if the governor's advisory team 
also recommends a mandate, then that will go to the Department of Health and Human Services, which will then recommend that the state that the state board of health put something on their agenda to consider a mandate. Then the board of health will consider it in a public meeting sometime in the next month, likely, and then the mandate will be in place, and we begin the process of actually figuring out, okay, how do we how do we do a mandate? And that's where we are. All right, Jacob. And I guess before we wrap up, I want to ask if this is approved, when would the vaccine mandate go into effect? So we don't actually know, but the assumption right now is that it wouldn't necessarily be immediately, right? Like students coming back for school this fall in August probably wouldn't be affected by this mandate because the assumption right now, based on the way the law is written, is that it would be through the enrollment process. And we have a pretty good idea of how the enrollment process works based off a normal year of enrolling for school classes. And essentially, if there is no mandate in place by the time that students have to set their schedules and drop classes and all that stuff, then there's there's essentially no way for it to be implemented in time for the fall semester, assuming that that's the way that this happens. We don't know that yet for sure. So if that is the case, then it's possible we don't even have a mandate until the spring semester. But the reality is that, I mean, students are going to have to start thinking about what their class load is going to be in October. And so if you want to enroll for school in October and you need to be vaccinated by January, and that's a six-week process, then we could start seeing a, a sort of an influx of students getting vaccinated uh, through the month of September and into October. All right, Jacob. Well, thank you for breaking down this complicated kind of kerfuffle of a, of a topic. Uh, we appreciate you being on the podcast, and thank you, as always, for being my wonderful co-host. I will talk to you in probably 10 seconds when we do the outro. I will see you, Joey, in 10 seconds when we do the outro. Thank you for listening to this episode of Indie Matters. We've got a lot of people to thank this week. Chanel Polito, Rebecca Garcia, Addie Rolnick, Sheila Weathers, Luann Wagner, Humberto Sanchez, Tabitha Mueller, Janelle Calderon, and Enrique Acuna. Thank you all for being on the show this week. Leave us a review wherever you listen. Subscribe to our monthly multimedia newsletter, Soundcheck, and email us with questions, comments, concerns, Ethernet board locations, Shrek 2 soundtrack recommendations, or whatever else you want to tell us about joey at the nvindie.com or jacob at the nvindie.com reno band people with bodies wrote and performed our original theme song if you want to hear more of their music you can find them on spotify or Bandcamp. there was additional music in today's episode from storyblocks and some original music from myself thank you for listening to indie matters i'm your host joey lovato and i'm reporter and producer jacob solis and we'll talk to you next week Welcome to Indie Matters. You, do you want to go with that? Yeah, I wanted to do a different one. I'm f***ed up this week. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, we'll leave it then. We'll leave it. Do it, do it again. <laughs> <laughs>